You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Well, it, it, is, it is interesting. We, um, we really did get a bird's eye view. You know, we, we, we probably should have gone a little slower, and I'm sure... If uh, if I had the luxury of a year, you know, maybe I would take, you know, like six weeks or something. But uh, <laughs> but I am thankful we did it. I'm thankful we did it. We, we made it. We got to the end of Jonah, and that is exciting. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be with you guys. Um, uh, and that's not just a smooth introduction into the sermon. Like, sincerely, you guys need to know I've enjoyed you, uh, enjoyed worshiping with you and, and being with you and talking about Jonah with you and I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for how you've just um, given your pastor a break. Um, I, I was actually kind of trained in a church plant uh, setting. I wasn't the planter. I was being trained under the planter and um, you know so, sometimes those planters don't know when to quit. You know they don't know when to stop. Um, they do things that are really um, um, they really shouldn't do right. Like they they burn themselves out on things that uh, that actually rob the congregation of 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 this pastoral energy. And it's it's you know it's from a good place. They just want to serve and they want to help and they want to be hands on. And um, and maybe you've noticed that with Joe over the years. You know you're like Joe, put put that down and you know save your energy for for you know, pastoring the flock, you know. Um, I, I don't know, maybe that's not the case with Joe. Um, I just know what I've seen from, from other planters. And so I just encourage you as a body to have your, have your eye out for that and, and, and have Joe's back and imagine ways in which you could um, free him up so that um, if he's wasting energy that he could be directing towards pastoring you on, on things that maybe you could help him with. Um, just ha- have an imagination for that. And maybe that's already happening. Maybe that's already going really well. But just in case, um, let me encourage you to just keep an eye on your pastor and make sure he's not burning himself out. Um, so that's, that's enough of that. Let's uh, jump into Jonah. I want to summarize where we've been a little bit because um, I see some faces I didn't get to meet yet. I'm sorry about that. But just a couple. I think I recognize almost the rest, all of the rest of you. So that's neat. Uh, but in case you um, are not familiar with Jonah uh, or have missed a couple weeks, let me summarize where we've been. And even if you have been here every week, um, you know, our memories can be short. So, so in chapter 1, uh, we're introduced to the prophet Jonah. And Jonah is told to go to this um, wicked, evil, unjust, violent city and, and take God's word to them. Uh, Jonah disobeys God's command to go to Nineveh, and he boards a ship heading in the opposite direction, but uh, the Lord pursues him anyway and gets glory uh, for himself anyway, and we kind of took the lesson from that story of God going after Jonah with that storm uh, to say that even though we are sinful and rebellious and disobedient, God doesn't let that uh, stop him from accomplishing his mission in the world, which is to bring uh, himself glory and our joy through his glory. Uh, then in chapter 2, after Jonah's been tossed off the boat that he's in and is drowning in the ocean, uh, God rescues him by sending a giant sea monster to swallow him up. 
Uh, Jonah prays from inside the belly of that monster and uh, thanks God for rescuing him. So one of the things we discovered there in chapter 2 was that uh, Jonah thought of the uh, digestive system of this giant sea beast as his salvation, as his deliverance, as God's grace to him because it saved him from drowning. And, And the lesson we took from that was that even though God's grace in our lives can be tough and unexpected and surprising and messing, uh, it is something still that turns us in the right direction. And that's good for us. And then last week, we saw in chapter 3 how Jonah was given this second chance to obey God and, and go to Nineveh and bring the word of the Lord to this city. That, that even though Jonah had disobeyed, God still wanted to use him to preach to Nineveh, this city that was filled with violence and injustice and evil. And, and we saw how Jonah's ministry there was wildly successful, even though he's somewhat of an incompetent preacher, right? He preaches an eight-word sermon about how much Nineveh sucks, and everybody gets saved. Like, everybody changes and repents and turns. And uh, the lesson we took from that was that when God sets out to change someone, he does it with his word. Uh, he doesn't use tricks or, or gimmicks or, or celebrities or, you know, varsity players. He takes his word and he, and he sends his people with his word and that's how people change. Now we get to chapter 4. And it's shocking. Let's read it together. Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse... Actually, let's back up to chapter 3, verse 10. That kind of completes the whole idea here. So chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into a being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? 
Let's pray. Father God, we know deep down what we ought to be and what we ought to feel in this moment. Uh, Hungry and thirsty for your word and interested in what you have to say and ready to obey. Happy that you're speaking and Lord, our hearts are slow to be where they ought to be. Our temptations and anxieties and fears and interests and desires pull us in a multitude of directions as we as we sit to receive your word and so we just pray together as brothers and sisters in Christ that you'd unite our hearts to fear your name and that uh, we'd be able to put away the temptations and put away the anxieties and put away the fears and and just be here and listen to your word and that you would work on us to open our ears and our eyes and soften our hearts and make us ready to obey you uh, to love you to see you in Jonah chapter 4 and to love you more for it let me pray it in Jesus name amen so chapter 4 is a surprise ending to the book of Jonah. Uh, and I, I like surprise endings. I think this is one of the most interesting and um, powerful things about the book of Jonah as the surprise ending. Um, when I was in, I think I was in high school, when anybody ever see The Sixth Sense? A few of us. Okay, I want to try not to ruin it then. Um, but when I, when I was in high school, this movie, The Sixth Sense, came out, and everybody was raving about it. I mean, just loving this movie. And it was, came out of nowhere. It was the first movie that this director ever made and written, and nobody knew about him. And then, boom, this movie comes out, and everybody's raving about it. So my friends and I, you know, we pile in the car, and we go off to see this movie after it had, like, hit the dollar theater. And, and so we're sitting in those rickety old theater seats, and, you know, it smells like moldy licorice or you know whatever old dollar theater smells like and we're watching this movie and and I'm like it's okay I mean it's not bad but I don't understand what the big to do is about I don't understand why this is breaking records and everybody's just uh, slobbering all over this movie and then it gets to the end right and then there's a big twist there's a big r- reveal and and it's one of those it's one of those twists it's one of those reveals that like you can't ever watch the movie the same way again. And in fact, the ending almost demands that you go back and rewatch the movie immediately and reinterpret everything that's happening in light of this big revelation that happens uh, at the end. And that's what made the movie really powerful. That's what makes the movie stick in people's minds. That's why people were raving about it. And this is what Jonah is like. Chapter 4 is not the ending that we're expecting to this story because our, our American sensibilities tell us that we tell stories in three acts. We, we tell stories a certain way and we like them in three parts. We liked in, in the first part, in the first act of our stories, we like the, the characters and the setting introduced. You know, we like to get familiar with the world we're being introduced to. And then in act two, we throw that world and we throw those characters into conflict and drama and problems. And that takes up the, the, the bulk of the movie. And then in the third part, in the final act, all those problems uh, are solved. And all that conflict is, is resolved. And the ending is usually happy but not Jonah that's not the way Jonah's story is told there's a surprise there's a fourth act there's a shocker at the end and I'm sure you saw it it's back in verses one through three 
God saves Nineveh. He relents of the disaster he promised to do to them, and it displeased Jonah. He was angry. He prayed to the Lord, basically saying, I knew you would do this. All along, I knew you would do this, and that's why I, that's why I left. That's why I disobeyed you. Jonah's angry at God for his compassion on Nineveh. In verse 3, he's actually complaining about God's love and patience. Have you ever complained about God's love and patience? Like, can you imagine talking to your spouse that way? Right? Like, honey, you are so loving and you are so patient. I just really hate that about you. Right? Like, this is, this is ugly, right? Jonah's saying this. What is going on? Has Jonah learned anything? Did, was the repentance we talked about back in chapter 2, was that even genuine? I mean, this is a surprising ending to Jonah. What is going on? Here's what I think we're meant to see about Jonah. Are you ready? Okay, I, I think, well, let's think about it this way. Jonah's sin Jonah's problem here that we're seeing and the problems we've seen all the way through, through Jonah is that Jonah's sin is like a tree. And, and what does a tree look like? Like what do you see when you look at a tree? You see leaves, uh, you see branches, uh, you see a trunk. But, but something you don't see is what? The roots, right? Trees don't just have the leaves and branches and trunk. They have roots. And that's what Jonah's sin is like. So when he repented in chapter 2 and kind of and turned and obeyed God, I think that was genuine repentance. I think he really repented. But I think it was Jonah dealing with his leaves and branches, not his roots. So in chapter 2, he was pruned, his leaves were trimmed, his, his dead branches were cut off. But here in chapter 4, we really get to the roots. We really get under the surface of Jonah's sin. And our sin is the same way. Like we're no different than Jonah. And thankfully, our God is no different than Jonah's God. So here's the main idea today I want us to walk away with. Here's the main point uh, of our time this morning. One, our sin has deep roots. Our sin has deep roots. But two, praise God, God's grace doesn't quit on us. God doesn't quit working on us. His grace gets down under the surface, down into the roots, and that grace doesn't quit on us until we're really changed. That's what I want us to walk away with today more than anything. Sin is something that always is going to have a root, something hidden under the surface that, that has to be reached, but that's exactly what God's grace aims for and reaches. So let's talk first about the roots of sin, because I know if you're like me, I'm... I'm not naturally prone to think about my sin that way. I'm not naturally prone to think about my sins as internal things with this, this complex system of roots. I want to only think about my sin as the outward stuff that can be outwardly managed so that if I can outwardly manage my behavior, I can pat myself on the back for having a pure heart. And God is not all that impressed with somebody who has a dirty heart and, and tidy behavior. He's after the heart. 
And so, so it's really important for us to talk about this, talk about the heart, talk about what's under the surface, talk about the roots of our sin. What, 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 what's the root, what's the thing down under the surface that's nourishing that leaf that keeps on growing back? This is what we got to talk about. That's why it's important to talk about. So let's look at those roots. So point one is sin has roots. Now, I want to show you that this is actually a biblical image, that this isn't my, like, creative brain coming up with some way for you to remember, uh, uh, you know, an abstract point. This is actually a, an image, an illustration that the Bible itself likes to use. So let me show you a verse from Jeremiah. If you want to see it yourself, that'd be fine. Um, I think I might have it on the screen. I don't remember. But Jeremiah, it's going to be about in the middle of your Bibles. Right after Isaiah. And in Jeremiah 17, uh, Jeremiah is kind of going to use this image a little bit uh, to talk about us as if we're trees or, or shrubs. He's going to say, you know, whether you're a dry, dead shrub or whether you're a, a living tree, you know, makes a, is going to have something to do with your, with your roots and where you're planting yourself. So, Jeremiah 17, uh, verse 5, uh, these are the words of God. Thus says the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. You know, and you can even see it there in, in verse 5. Jeremiah makes a connection between you know, making flesh our strength, making the outward stuff most important. But then Jeremiah turns and says, ah, really, but that's your heart turning away from the Lord. And Jeremiah makes this connection between the outward and the, the inward, and he says, you know, when your heart turns away from the Lord, you, you, you just make other physical things uh, your hope and strength, okay? And he says about that person, he says, verse 6, he is like a shrub in the desert. It's like a shrub in the desert shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, and he, he's like a tree, planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. And so there's just this idea that, hey, we've got roots, and they're either watered by the streams of God or they're planted in the desert, and, and, and what grows out of us is directly related to where we're planted. So this idea of a root system, you know, producing our behavior is a very much a biblical idea. Uh, an idea that's uh, used to illustrate our sin. There's like a whole root system down there. And the sins we see are often nourished by that root. Now, here's why the image is helpful. The image is helpful because the reality is, and this is obvious, but, but the reality is, is that if we don't kill the roots of our sin, then we're not going to kill our sins. Like, if we don't get to the roots, then the sins will just keep on coming up Again and again and again. Like, I do not have a green thumb. Like, uh, my, my, as a kid, I didn't have to mow much. I mean, I mowed a little bit. Um, but, you know, my, my dad largely took care of that. And, and, um, and then I went to college. They don't make you mow your dorm, you know, so I didn't mow. And then I lived in apartments for years, and that was always just covered, or there wasn't a lawn to mow. And you fast forward a few years, and I'm married and have kids and a house, and all of a sudden I've got this whole yard to take care of, and I discovered it's not easy. Like, you have to do a lot of work in the fall and in the summer and in the, you know, all these different seasons 
uh, demand kind of weed treatments. Otherwise, you get dandelions in your yard, and it you know looks like you know come this time of year. Frankly, you know the dandelions come up at least where we lived, and and there there'd be weeks where I'm like, people are gonna think we moved, like. The dandelions are everywhere. We look like we look like we abandoned ship. Um, and what I discovered is that as often as I mowed the dandelions down, they kept coming up. Right? You can mow them down, and the grass looks great after you like like day after you mow. But then they kept coming up. The reality is you have to poison those things, or you have to get down into the roots and and pull them up. So the roots have to be poisoned. The roots have to be pulled up. And it's the same thing with our sins. And we can all relate to this. And the, re- the reason we can relate to this is that, well, okay, think about it this way. How often do you just surprise yourself, right? Like, like you commit that sin or you have that sinful attitude or this sinful behavior and it just keeps coming back. It just keeps coming around. Maybe every week, maybe every month, maybe every you know, couple times a year, whatever it is, it comes up again and you have these moments where it comes up again and you're just like oh, I can't believe it can't believe I did it again can't believe I thought it again can't believe I said it again like why do we surprise ourselves why do those things keep coming back and even though they're continually popping up they always surprise us they always surprise us because we think they're just branches and leaves and they're not connected at all to a root system that needs to be reached and yanked out. Jonah is an example of this. Jonah's branch sin, right, the leaf hanging on the branch of his sin, was obviously that he just disobeyed God. God said, do this. Jonah said, no, not going to do it. I'm going to go this way. You know, goes out that way, pouts and runs. Okay, that's, that's pretty outward, obvious sin. Those are visible sins. And, and he dealt with them by turning around, doing what God told him to do. So he cut off the branch, but it was just a branch. There's more to what motivated that disobedience that we're seeing here in chapter 4. And incidentally, as a side note, um, many of you struggle about whether or not you're actually saved and it may not be because you're not saved. It may simply be that you just, keep, you just keep hacking off branches and you're never getting down to the roots. It's not that God doesn't love you. It's not that you're not his. It's not that you're not saved. It's that there's some root work that needs to happen. And God wants that agony for you to be over. Right? He wants the agony of you wondering whether you're saved or not to be over. He wants you to get down to the roots. Okay, so let's think about this. What's lust? What is it when you, when you lust for uh, another person? When you lust for a possession? When you lust for a position of power or influence or significance? What is it? What's at the heart of that? It's ingratitude. Like, lust says, I am not grateful for what I have. I want that. I'm not grateful for the spouse I have. I want that one. I'm not grateful for the stuff I have. I want that stuff. I'm not grateful for the position I have. I want that one. It's ingratitude. You're a grumpy ingrate. That's why you lust after stuff. That's why I lust after stuff. What's anger? What is anger? No, 
just a bad day? Is that why you get angry? Do you get angry because, because um, they don't make tires like they used to, right? And they go flat? Uh, you know, like, on your way to work, when it's raining, and it's been raining all week, and you weren't supposed to work today? Like, is that it? Does circumstances control your anger? Or is anger really, at, at, at the root, really just you assuming that you're entitled to an easy life? I love Paul Tripp. Uh, Paul Tripp sometimes says, he says, you know, naturally when I'm left to myself, you know, the way I was born, what, what, what my heart wants is to drive on new roads paid for by other taxpayers who choose not to use them. Right? <laughs> new roads paid for by other taxpayers who choose not to use them. That's what my heart thinks I'm entitled to. And that's where anger comes from, because you're not God and you're not entitled to anything. You're entitled to hell because you're a sinner. And so anger is this, this, this leaf, this branch that grows out of this heart of entitlement that says, life should go well for me. Who says? Okay, this is what I'm talking about when it comes to branches, leaves, and the roots that nourish them. Name the sin. You can always trace it back to a very simple root, but a root we've got to dig up a root we got to face. And um, it's like that with Jonah. There's more under the surface here that has to be brought out and dealt with. Now, I remember being a kid in Sunday school and hearing lessons about Jonah again and again and again. And the lesson about Jonah was always this, at least as, as much as I can remember. Maybe I wasn't a very good Sunday school student. But what, what, what I remember was, here's the story of Jonah. Jonah was sent to be a missionary, an evangelist to this, this, these sinners off in Nineveh. And he said, no, I don't want to go. Um, and, and he disobeyed God. And, and, and he, he, uh, is, you know, he's rescued by God and, and pulled back into ministry. And, and he goes into ministry. And, and ta-da, it's radically successful. And, and, and people change because of his ministry. And so the lesson, kids, is this. Don't be afraid to evangelize. See, Jonah was afraid, and so he left and turned away from God and tried to run away from God, and, and, and God pulled him you know, away from his disobedience and planted him back in Nineveh and sent him on a missionary trip, and, and it was wildly successful. So kids, don't be afraid. Obey God and, and be brave and evangelize like Jonah was brave. What's the problem with that? The problem, and you've seen it, but the problem is that Jonah wasn't afraid. Jonah was not afraid that he would fail. He was afraid he would succeed. He did not want them to be saved. He hated them. He wanted them to die. Now, what's the root of that problem? I hope we see that that's a problem, <laughs> right? That's a problem when God's man wants sinners to die. What's the root of that problem? I puzzled over this a, a, a bit. But I think the root of that problem is pride. Jonah thinks so highly of himself that he wants to be in charge of who is forgiven and who is not. When you want to be in charge of that, you want to be God. When you think you know better than God, 
you are acting as if you are God. When you think your standards are higher than God's, that's pride. That's Jonah's root problem. And he is so different. Not different than us, but he is so different from Jesus. You think about, think about Jonah and Jesus. You're trying to really contrast the two all the way through this, this time in Jonah. But I want you to think about a particular difference between Jesus and Jonah in this passage. In verse 3, we read that Jonah is so burdened by this that he wants to die. It's like, my life is not worth living if you're just going to let this, let these people off the hook. He's so burdened, he wants to die. And, and that burden is because he wants his way and he's not getting it, right? I want this to go my way, God, and it's not going my way, and I'm so upset about this that I want to die. And then you've got Jesus like in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? The night before his crucifixion, and he knows what's coming. And it says in, in, in the gospel accounts that Jesus was so burdened, he was burdened to the point of death. He's sweating blood, and an angel has to come and minister to him so that he doesn't die there in the garden. Only, what does Jesus say when he's burdened to the point of death? Not my will, but yours be done. So we have a Jonah who is burdened to the point of death because he's not getting his way, and Jesus burdened to the point of death and yet says, no, God, your way, not mine. Your way, not mine. Um, both Jonah and, and Jesus have stories where they have to sit outside the city. Jonah goes outside the city of, of Nineveh after God tells him that he's going to relent of this disaster. And, and it's almost like Jonah's going out of the city to, to he's going he's to camp out and he's going to wait the 40 days and he's going to see if maybe God will do what he promised to do and wipe him out. You can also imagine him sitting there with his arms crossed, you know, nice sweaty glass of lemonade, just waiting for the fire to rain down, right? Fourth of July on, on Nineveh. Dragged or no, waiting outside the city, arms crossed, waiting for her destruction. Whereas Jesus, he gets dragged outside the city, gets dragged outside Jerusalem, a city of injustice and, and wickedness and sin and idolatry. Jesus, he gets dragged outside the city to be destroyed for her. Jonah sits outside his city waiting for her to be destroyed and Jesus gets dragged out of his to be destroyed in her place. And when Jonah obviously sits outside that city waiting for that destruction to fall down, it's because he hates the people in it. And when Jesus is dragged outside his city, it's because he loves the people in it. Like if Jonah showed us nothing more than what makes Jesus so great, it would be a story worth, worth hearing again and again. There's more than that in Jonah, but if that's all there was, if all we saw was a delinquent prophet, and how much better the word of God made flesh is, Jonah would be worth reading because it helps us see how great Jesus is. Now, the next thing Jonah shows us 
is how even though our sin goes deep, even though our sin is ugly like this, like we see in Jonah's heart here, our God doesn't give up on us before his grace gets down to those roots. So the next thing we get to see, the next thing Jonah shows us is that even though our sin is deep, God's grace doesn't quit until it's rooted out of us. So, second part here is this grace that doesn't quit. And I think this is how the passage gets this idea across. So the idea is that this, God's grace just doesn't quit on us until this stuff is rooted out. And I think this is how the passage tries to get that idea across. You might remember from the, from the first week that when the Hebrews would tell stories, they would, like, they, would, they would kind of pick these central major phrases or, or words or ideas to repeat. And those that would just keep coming up, even redundantly, even seemingly unnecessarily, repetition was how the Hebrews would get across the main points of their stories. And here in chapter 4, there's this phrase, and it's given to us several times right in a row, and it's this phrase, God appointed. God appointed, or the Lord God appointed. So there's something central to the meaning of this passage in this phrase, God appointed. You notice the repetition happens in 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6, the Lord God appoints a plant to grow up quickly and give shade to Jonah. In verse 7, God appoints a worm to attack that plant so that it begins to um, lose its uh, life. And then verse 8, God appoints a scorching wind to really drive that home and uh, to make Jonah weak and faint. And all of these things that God appoints become an object lesson for Jonah. He appoints these things to happen in a way that put Jonah almost into his own parable to help him see something about himself that he really needs to see. God appoints this scenario. He appoints this discomfort for Jonah to provoke this conversation in verse 9. God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, and Here's the lesson. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. Just a plant, Jonah. You want to die over a plant. Therefore, verse 11, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, 120,000 persons who don't know any better, not to mention the cattle, which is kind of like cattle? But, I mean, what, what, what's he saying? It's life, Jonah. I made it. I created it. It came from my imagination. If you're going to want to die over a plant, can I not have a heart for 120,000 eternal souls? How would you feel, Jonah, if I went down wanting to die for them? What's God teaching Noah, or teaching Jonah? This is what he's telling him. You care more about your own comfort. You care more about yourself. The destruction of a plant can get a rise out of you, but not the destruction of 120,000 people? Jonah had been grateful for how God rescued him from the waters. 
that he was drowning in in chapter 2. But he, had just, he hadn't fully got grace yet. It hadn't really sunk down. It really hadn't hit him in the roots. Jonah still needed to see the God who had given him that grace was a God who loves to give it to others. Who loves to give it to the least expected. You could almost feel sorry for Jonah. You can almost understand where he's coming from because I think Jonah's dilemma is probably this one. It's probably largely tied up with his idea of the justice of God. Jonah is stuck on this tension that is introduced here between God's justice and his grace. And maybe you've thought about this too. This is a, this is a tension that runs through the whole Old Testament. You see it come up in um, Exodus 34, 6. Uh, and this, this is a verse that just perfectly illustrates, it perfectly summarizes this, this, these two things, God's grace and God's justice, that as you're reading the Bible, you're like, how do these work together? So Exodus 34, 6 sums up probably what is burdening Jonah here. Uh, uh, it says, verse 6, uh, the Lord passed before him. This is the Lord uh, in Moses' presence. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This all sounds familiar to us, right? But this God will by no means clear the guilty. That's what you call attention because we are all guilty. God shows love and forgiveness, but he doesn't clear the guilty. Well, which is it? Does he forgive the guilty or does he punish the guilty? This is what bothers Jonah. Jonah is outside the city arguing with God about how he can be so patient. He's arguing with God, how are people going to fear you? How are, gonna people, how are people going to take you seriously if you don't do what you say, if you don't perform the justice that you say you will perform? You say, Lord, that you will not clear the guilty, but you just did. This is Jonah's dilemma. How can God be just and show mercy? Of course, ultimately, this tension is resolved at the cross, is it not? It's, it's, it's at the cross we see the horror of God's justice and his wrath and his righteousness against sin poured out on his own son. And yet simultaneously, what is the cross? It is a display of his love for sinners whom he wants to forgive and pardon and justify. And so really this, this, this story in Jonah needs a cross. Otherwise, God doesn't do what he promised to do, which is to hate sin. But he does hate sin. And he loves sinners. And we know that's true because Jesus died on a cross. And he took the wrath that our sins deserve so that he could love us and save us. And that's why Paul calls the cross the wisdom of God. The cross solves that tension. And as Christians, we have a glorious privilege to look back on Jonah and read it in the light of the cross. 
to know about the cross that this story needs. Now, Jonah doesn't have that cross to look back on. But he does have this. He has this invitation from his God to share the heart of God for others. God doesn't really make it easy for Jonah. He doesn't just give him the answer. He doesn't settle the tension. He just asks him something like this. He basically just tells Jonah, Jonah, could you just be happy to share my heart for these people? Would it just be okay? Would you want to live if you could live with my heart for this city? For these people that I have made in my image? This is where you and I are supposed to be challenged. Story's over at that point. It's not just a surprise ending. It's a cliffhanger. So now it's our story to finish, right? My story to finish. Will we have the heart of God for other people? Will his grace touch our roots? That's what the story of Jonah invites us to ponder. Will we be in awe and wonder of this God who is so different than Jonah. Like Jonah, you think about Jonah wanting to die for a plant. I'd rather plant is goner. Time to die. And God, who's willing to come and die so that sinners don't have to. Are we going to have that heart? Now, I mean, we'll, I'm just going to leave it to you to think about and pray about. But I want to leave you a couple applications. And, and these are particularly for you if that grace has touched you at the roots. If, if the grace of God to you and Jesus has got you and it's nailed you in the heart, I want to give you three lessons, three takeaways from Jonah to leave with. And, and I'm, this is really important. Uh, the, the lessons I'm going to leave with you, the applications, the things I want you to kind of take with you, they really are not for you if God's grace hasn't touched you. Like if you don't know this God, if you don't know Jesus this way, then, then what I'm going to give you is going to be a weight you can't carry. And, it, and it's going to... Um, it's going to make your guilt and in your burden worse. Okay, so this is for if, if God's grace has got you. This is for you to apply if God's grace to you through Jesus is just amazing to you. So here it is, some lessons from Jonah. Number one, we should love our neighbors because we have been greatly loved. We have been greatly loved and so we should love our Neighbors, think about it this way. Who would you like right now to just take out at the knees? Right? Come on, you know who it is. He's in your head right now. Right? Like, like if, if nobody was watching, right? Who do, you, who do you fantasize about winning arguments with? Right? Like, you're, you catch yourself in a daydream winning an argument with somebody. What are you doing? 
<laughs> there you go. All right. Okay, so there's so many. Maybe 120,000, right? Like all my Facebook friends. Like, I don't even know why I'm on Facebook anymore. They all annoy me, right? Okay, so, but we've, so we've got those people, right? We've got those people. The story of Jonah exists so that you and I would be invited by God himself to feel about them the way he does. Jonah, the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah is God's invitation to love the person who drives you crazy. God has shown us that he has satisfied his justice for that person at the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you want the most surprising and unexpected people in your life to receive the grace of that cross? the love of God that is given through that cross. I mean, when we look at how deep the root of our own sin goes, do we not recognize that we are God's surprise ending? It's kind of a surprise that he would save us. Do we see ourselves that way? Uh, I once heard a preacher ask his congregation, he said, um, isn't it surprising that God loves justice and righteousness and you? That should surprise you and delight you and provoke love of neighbor from within you. It's amazing that God loves us, but he does more than we could have ever hoped for, and so we should love the neighbors that are really hard to love. That's lesson one. Lesson two. We should recognize our circumstances as God's appointments. We should recognize our circumstances as God's appointments. So there's this emphasis throughout the chapter, right? Really throughout the book of God appointed, God appointed, God appointed. Every, everything is, is happening at the behest of God's word. God is just speaking and things are happening. So we're not to think of our own circumstances as coincidences, as, as chance, as just the way things go. Everything, everything is at God's disposal to provoke you in ways that expose your heart and move you into places where you, you, you're then able to see the roots and, and have God's grace get at those. Um, some of you might know a man named, or know of a man named John Newton. John Newton was most famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace. Um, he was a slave trader um, uh, for his, his career, and as, as he came to Christ and, and heard and believed in the gospel, um, what grew in him was this distaste and this dissatisfaction for the slave trade that he was making money on. And he, so, he, so eventually he, he abandons his slave trade and he, he writes this hymn, Amazing Grace. And you can even hear in the hymn, Amazing Grace, like what he thinks of himself. Like, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, right? Like, we don't use that word anymore, do we? That's like, that's a, that's a nasty word, wretch. But this is how John Newton thought of himself and he, and he was amazed at the grace that was given to him. And that's why the hymn has lasted so long. But Newton wrote another hymn, uh, a hymn that's not as well known, and it's also about grace like this. But this hymn is actually based on Jonah 4. And it goes like this. The lyrics are on the screen. I'm going to read you the verses and maybe give you some commentary uh, throughout because I think, I think Newton really had really had a handle on Jonah 4. And, and especially this idea that our, our circumstances are controlled by God in order to get to our hearts and make us more holy. This is, what he, this is how the hymn goes. Verse 1, I asked the Lord that I might grow 
in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. Because you can see what he's saying here. It's like, we, we pray like this when we're Christians, right? Like, God, increase our faith and, and help us to overcome this sin, right? Like, make us more holy. Help us to grow up. Help us to trust you more, right? And, and in verse 2, you see, him, you see him saying, you taught me to pray this way, okay, Lord? So, so you taught me to pray, to grow in faith, to grow in grace, to know more of your salvation, to seek you more earnestly, to, to be close to you, okay? So, so this is what I'm praying for. This is how you taught me to pray. And then halfway down in verse 2, he says, but he answered prayer in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped, this is verse 3, that in some favored hour, at once, he would grant my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. You can hear him asking. I, I thought this was going to be like an instant download, right? I thought this would be like ordering a Big Mac, right? Like I give them my money and they bring me the Big Mac. It takes like 30 seconds. You can hear this in his, I, th- I thought it would just happen in an hour. I thought I'd, say, I'd, I'd give you my request and, and your love and it, all its power would just, just take my sins away and, and give me rest. It would just happen. I get it, right? Like, I okay, heard the gospel, and now I'm completely changed, right? This is how I wanted it to be. This is what he's singing. This is what he's writing. Verse 4, but instead, instead of this, this is what you did. He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yay, more! More than this, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He seemed content to make my life worse. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Blasted my gourds and laid me low. Uh, according, to, according to tradition, the plant that grew up over Jonah was a gourd. So this is, where, this is why we know he's writing about Jonah 4. And, he, and he's saying, all the, all the tents we've built for ourselves under the shade... All the plans we have for our prosperity and success and comfort, God has sabotaged and taken from me. So he says in verse 6, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? And here's the reply of the Lord. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. This is the way I answer prayers for grace and faith, John. This is the way I answer prayers for grace and faith, Jonah. These inward trials, this is verse 7, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free, to break all your schemes of worldly joy so you'd seek your all in me. That was what God was trying to teach Jonah. It's as if God is saying, don't you see, Jonah, you won't be happy if Nineveh is destroyed. Not really, not forever. You'll only be happy in me. You'll only be happy if you are like me and and love me and, and trust me. I am God, Jonah. 
You need to find your all in me and your joy in me. And that's what he's telling you. That's what he's telling us. That is why God appoints all the drama in our lives. It's from self and pride to set us free. So that all your joy and all your hope and all your peace would no longer be chained to how well your life is going but tethered instead to this God who doesn't change and doesn't move. And who set Jesus to die for you and secure your eternity with him? Last lesson. Three. Christians, don't be embarrassed about being low. Okay, so I've just said the circumstances in your life Even the hard ones are for your holiness, but that doesn't change the fact that we get sad, right? Okay, so we are not to be embarrassed by that, about being deeply, deeply low. Jonah, in this chapter, is low here. He's one of God's people. God loves him. He's one of God's own, and he's low. He's down in the dumps. He's so down, he wants to die. I was at a funeral, oh, last year, and... um, I had the opportunity to say a few words, and um, and then after after I after after I said what I said, and you know the the funeral was over, and and the families gathered together later that later that evening. This was a relative of mine. She comes up to me and she's like, "You know, I appreciated what you said." Um, and what I had said was about how people just people kind of will say cliche type things at funerals because um, grief makes them uncomfortable. And she's like, "You know, I it's like." I really, I struggle with depression, I struggle with anxiety, I get really low, and, and this is one thing I've noticed about people. People are really uncomfortable with grief. We're embarrassed by it. We're embarrassed of people who are sad. We're embarrassed by, by when, we, when, we, when we are sad. Well, not everybody, but a lot of times this is what happens. We want to keep the sad people at an arm's length. There's lots of reasons for that, but that's, that's what we do. And I think Jonah is a lesson. There's lots of saints. I mean, Jesus was so sad in the garden that he was bleeding. I mean, he was, he was sweating blood. Um, Elijah, at one point, prays this way, asks for God to take his life because he's so sad. Jonah here is so sad, so burdened, so angry that he wants to die. And here's what we need to see. We don't need to be embarrassed by that. We need to let people in on that. We need to see that God is not embarrassed by Jonah's sadness. God is right there and God is talking to him and God is reaching into his heart and God is dealing with him and God is loving him and God is leading him. We know Jonah, most likely, got his act together. Or God, got his act together for him. God dealt with him. God transformed him because no one else could have written Jonah but Jonah. Nobody could have known what went on in the belly of that beast except for Jonah. So we know Jonah, he wrote his own story and he made himself the butt of the joke. That's a man that's been humbled and transformed by the grace of God. And so we need to see that that there are saints in the history of God's people that get so low they want to die, but God isn't embarrassed by them. And he loves them and he's there for them. So I want to encourage you that if that's where you're at today, you're in good company. Don't be embarrassed about your low today because God has grace for you in it. 
And that's Jonah. I'm going to pray, take communion together, and encourage our hearts in the presence of this reminder of God's grace to us in our lows. Let's pray. Father, we're about to share this commemorative meal together. Uh, this proclamation, this announcement that you are a God of righteousness and justice and yet love for sinners. And we can proclaim this mysterious message because this Jesus has taken our sins away on the cross and loved us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, since we've been talking about surprises, um, surprise endings, uh, it seems fitting to notice that Jesus' own story is full of surprises. King of Kings is born in a manger, or born in a stable and laid in a manger rather than a palace. Not even born in a nice town. Not a, probably not even born in the nice part of a nice town. The savior of the world, when he grows up, he recruits fishermen and tax collectors to be his disciples rather than religious scholars or famous pastors. And then, of course, there's this surprise, the son of God who deserved to be worshipped and loved and adored instead gave up his life for sinners on a cross and was treated like trash. That's a surprise. It's a surprise because a cost as high as the life of son of as high as the life of the son of God must mean that we have accrued for ourselves an eternal debt and we can't pay. I mean we could pay it, but we'd be paying it in hell forever because it's going to last forever. This is a surprise when the infinitely valuable son of God would come and offer to pay the debt pay it at the cost of his own life. Sins of infinite consequences, sinners deserving of infinite punishment, loved, saved, and forgiven. This is the marvel of the ages. And that's what this meal is about. The first night that this was shared with the disciples, it was a preview of God's biggest surprise. Bread for the Son of God's broken body and the cup for his blood out for our sins and in these things we remember an infinitely perfect life given over to cover the infinite cost of our sin and in this sharing together we are invited to never cease delighting in the greatness of Christ's surprising love and surprising sacrifice for us of course you guys know the drill we're going to invite you to come whenever you're ready if you need uh, me or uh, Dave to pray with you. We'd be happy to do that. That's what we're here for. So we invite you uh, to come. If, if this surprising sacrifice has been something that's touched your heart and touched your life, it'd be good to come forward and do this. <clears throat> it'd be good if you're a believer in Jesus to share this meal with us. If, if you're not a believer in Jesus, it would be good if you just waited. I mean, you could still come forward and we would pray for you, but um, it'd be good if you would just wait and, and, and pray and, and ask God to get his grace down to the roots of your heart 
But if that grace has reached your heart and you love Jesus and you know Jesus loves you and has given his body and his blood for your rescue, we want you to come and proclaim that good news as you share these things. You come when you're ready. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.